Well, in first service, uh, Tim Retchen made comment about uh, a recital that his boys were in yesterday, and uh, I was reflecting back on times when we used to do recitals and things like that. And, and um, there's something about learning to play an instrument, learning to play something, whether it's piano or something in band, that, that, is, uh, that that's an exciting time. It's kind of a torturous time, too, because um, you're paying for it, and the sound sometimes starts off pretty messy and pretty ugly, and you think, man... Are we going to do this? Is it going to sound like this forever? And for some it does, and so then you move on to something else. But for others, there's improvement and growth, and something beautiful comes out of it. And uh, that's the best part of it. Our lives can sometimes feel like that. Um, just a little messy, a little chaotic. And, and uh, the good thing about what we're going to look at here today is that God is pretty good about making uh, good things come out of sometimes things that feel a bit like a mess. So take a look at this video, and we'll jump into our sermon this morning. I've heard it. You've heard it. It's time for a new beginning. Time to start a fresh page or paint a new picture with our life. Sounds great in theory, but it can seem impossible. Life is messy. The lines have gotten blurred. Maybe we just don't know where to start. We look at the canvas of our lives and see mistake after mistake, after mistake. It's overwhelming. When I look at my life, with these messy lines and scribbles, it makes me think, is this as good as it gets? There's no eraser that can make this life make sense. But what if? What if there was someone that could make sense of our mess. They could take all our scribbles, all our mistakes, all our missed opportunities, and make them into a masterpiece. And then I remember, there is Jesus. He gives us a new life. Every day is new. Every day is a blank canvas full of possibility and promise. He takes our canvases, our lives, that have been filled up with shortcomings, secrets, tragedies, and embarrassments, and he helps them make sense. When I look at the canvas of my life and I see nothing but disorder and chaos, I have to remember this. God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of peace. And you know what? He wants to take my hand and bring peace to the canvas of my life. So as we seek to make our mark, let us give God all our scribbles, all our mistakes, all our hurts, and trust that he will turn our messy lives into a masterpiece, his masterpiece. I want you to think with me today about how God takes ordinary people and he glorifies himself through their changed lives. That word that we began to look at last week is the word ordinary. Again, it's not an exciting word in and of itself. No one looks at that word and gets excited much about life or about the theme. And yet the excitement that I see is that oftentimes it is through very ordinary people it is through ordinary means that God oftentimes comes to us and he does some of his best work 
in this world. Last week, as I said, we began to look at this theme. And, and just so we're on the same page, if you weren't with us last week, I want to define what I mean by ordinary, what we said last week. And so let, if you'll let me review for just a moment, uh, just the four things that we said about this word ordinary and why it is a beautiful word for you if you are a Christian. Um, it is simply these four things. That ordinary means everyone can attain it. There's not some super spiritual level that only a few people can get to. Um, ordinary means that the faith that is accessible to us through Christ is accessible to all of us through our faith in Christ. And so ordinary means everyone can attain it. Uh, the second thing we said, though, but don't equate ordinary with mediocre. We're not encouraging mediocrity in this series. The, the book of First Thessalonians that we're, going to, we're walking our way through is not a book that expects or allows you uh, to pursue mediocrity or laziness. Um, in fact, it is very much a book that encourages and pushes you towards excellence in Christ, but it doesn't do so through extraordinary means. It does it through very ordinary things as we engage an ordinary God, extraordinary God uh, in our faith. And so don't equate ordinary with mediocrity through this series. A third thing we said is don't miss the ordinary in the example of Jesus. So many of the things that we're going to look at uh, as we go through this book of 1 Thessalonians are things that just in the daily life of Jesus were present there in his life. And God used these ordinary things to do extraordinary things through his life. And uh, we just asked the question last week, is it time to change your expectations? Um, are we just always trying to be um, more than we need to be? Are we trying to be amazing when God just really is wanting to use our ordinary things out of our life oftentimes to do his greatest work through them? And so much of what God wants to do in and through us is found in very ordinary things. And so the most basic of those things is the change that he brings. Now, there may be a few of you who have Apostle Paul, a Saul on the road to Damascus kind of testimonies to your life that, that man, you were headed on the highway to hell and you were going there fast, right? And, and you were going and, and maybe God just didn't make, grabbed you and you did a complete 180. And if that's your story, that is an awesome story and God is glorified through that. But maybe that's not your story. Maybe your story is a very ordinary story. You were just living for yourself and just heading your own direction, just didn't really live for God much. And, um, and yet God has caught you and God has begun to turn your life around and God has, has saved you through what Christ has done. And, and maybe the change isn't quite as dramatic as you tell it in story form, but the change is, is real nonetheless. And so God oftentimes uses very ordinary things uh, to give him the most glory through. And I think the story of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is very full of that example. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you have your phone app, you can open that up and read along with us. I encourage you to do that uh, so that you're reading in your own word as well. Um, and so Paul gives a beautiful description in these first few chapters, the first few verses of this book, actually, that really give us a beautiful picture of what a, a healthy church looks like, which, of course, is made up of healthy Christians. And so where does that health begin? Where does it begin? I think it begins in how we listen to God and connect with God and we receive what God has for us to say. This is the goal. This is, I think, the summary statement that, that Paul says is the culmination of this health and this beauty that's at work in these Christians' lives that Paul is very proud of, very thankful to God for. He says this in verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. What a goal to have as a group of Christians to say, hey, would we live such a beautiful and good faith 
That just the faith would just be known and talked about and seen and observed. Again, not that that's our goal is to be seen and observed. The goal is to live faithful. But God can use that to, to uh, ring out to the world around that, that he is there, that he can be found and he can be known and he can be followed. That word rang out is kind of a, a musical term uh, in a lot of ways. It's very much if you've ever played the cymbals in band. Anybody? Cymbal players? Anybody? Anybody? Nobody? Okay. A few? No? Nobody? No one? Okay. Triangle players? Anybody else? But if you're a cymbal player, you know that a cymbal is a powerful instrument, right? Played at the right time and the right beat, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, but if you play at the wrong time and the wrong beat, it can be quite obnoxious and, and not well, well placed, right? It's that idea of that, or it's the idea of a thunderclap that just breaks out of nowhere and just all of a sudden things are quiet and all of a sudden thunder breaks through uh, the sky. And it's that noise that, that just captures everyone's attention when you hear it. And so that's very much what Paul says has happened as a result of their, their pursuit of Christ and, and their growing faith as they were a young church, a growing church in their faith, and, and as God was using them to do multiple things around them, the, 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 just the message, not just in Thessalonica, the city they lived in, but in Greece and that whole region that we're going to look at uh, over the next few weeks here. And so the Lord's message rang out is a wonderful goal for us to be able to, to pursue, but that doesn't happen without very ordinary living faithfully for Christ, day in, day out kind of things that allow that kind of thing to happen. And so let's read verses one through 10 of our text. I just want you to, to see where Paul says this comes from. How did they go from being a group of people who prior to Paul arriving there that, that they didn't know anything about Jesus? They didn't know him. They didn't know who he was. They never heard his name. But Paul shows up in town, preaches the gospel to them, shares who Jesus is with them. And in the course of time, months, maybe a year tops, this church has become a group of people that, that everybody in that region knows about them. They have become that, they, their change has been so dramatic in their life. And so how does that happen? I, I want to show you four things in this text that I think allow change to happen. Again, maybe not extraordinary. It may be extraordinary, but oftentimes it is, it is daily change that God is working in our life that I think he reflects in these verses. So let's read verses 1 through 10, which is what chapter 1 is, and uh, see where that takes us. Verse 1 says this, Paul and Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. And just as a side note, if you were to take out all the English things that had put in there with chapter divisions and verses and just read this letter like, like Paul wrote it originally, you would have the longest thank you that Paul ever wrote in anywhere in the Bible. It begins here, doesn't end till the end of chapter, or middle of chapter two, where Paul just has this great big I'm thankful for you section. And this is what he's thankful for. We remember before your, our God and Father, your work produced by faith and your labor prompted by love and the endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's this faith and this love and this hope that is just continuing to produce a great work in them. And so how did they come to have that? How did they come to that place? Well, he goes on to tell them, this is what happened when we showed up in town and began to share with you the good news about who Jesus was. We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And how do we know that? Well, Paul says, well, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. 
And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, which are little Greek provinces, if you want to look up a map later, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Just as an interesting little side note, if you go through, this, open up the book of First Thessalonians and look at the end of each chapter division, it's there now. Uh, at the end of each one of those, there's this uh, statement that Paul makes about how they're waiting, the importance of them waiting, and Jesus is coming again, and, and we'll dig into that more, but just note the, the difference that hope makes in their life and how it's motivating them as you read through this text. And so where does this change come from? How did they go from being, we don't know anything about Jesus, to being something that everybody in that region knows something about Jesus because this group of Christians is living out their faith in such a way that their lives are being changed, they're growing, they're, it's spreading. How is that happening? How does that change happen? There are four simple things I want you to see, but they are things that if we engage in them in regular ways in, in our life, I think that same change is going to be at work in our lives as well. Um, and so the first one is this. I think God-honoring change happens this way. It is fueled. It begins. The fuel that lights that fire, that begins that whole thing, is fueled by an interaction with the gospel. Verses four and five, beginning of verse five, Paul talks about what happened when he came into town. And he talks about how these people came in contact with the gospel for the first time in their life. And they heard it, and it wasn't just empty words to them. It did something inside of them, and they changed the way they thought, changed the way they lived, changed the way they spoke, and the things they did, their habits, who they hung out with. All these things changed because of the power of what God was doing through what they heard. Now, it didn't happen to everybody. In fact, if you will look in a few weeks here, if you read Acts 17, there were a group of people that God, that the message really worked on. There was another group of people who had very hard hearts to it. And in fact, they were so hard to it, they persecuted it and they rebelled against it and they made it difficult for those who did believe. And so it's not like everybody in town believed, but those who did, Paul says, that heard the gospel, who'd been prepared and were ready to hear that, they became different people because they were willing to allow their life to interact with the gospel. And when we do that, what happens to us is that we begin to change. That happens when we first meet Jesus, first hear the gospel, but I think that also continues as we continue to grow in Christ because the temptation is for me to hear the good news, to respond to the good news, and I'm on the way, but then over time I begin to distance myself from the gospel and, and I stop changing. I don't continue to transform into the image of Christ because I'm removing myself from that regular interaction with God and his word and the gospel and what it wants to do. And so why is the gospel so powerful? Why does it do this work? Paul uses three words to describe what happened when he shared it. He uses the word power. Now, some people think that's like miracle stuff he did, and that could be the case, but I don't think Acts 17 tells us that. Acts 17 says he came and he went to the synagogue daily and weekly, and he began to share with them and just simply preached the gospel to them uh, week by week in the Old Testament, showing them this picture of this promised Messiah and this perfect Messiah and this crucified Messiah and resurrected Messiah and, and this coming again Jesus. And so he just week by week built a case for this. And so what happens when someone like Paul or someone like you who believes in Jesus, you begin to share what you know about Jesus, to share the gospel, to share the good news about Jesus. Well, Paul says in other places, he didn't come with uh, 
smooth-talking words. He wasn't the best expositor. He didn't come and just wow them with his speech. He said, I just simply shared a message that I deeply believed because I loved it. I'd seen what Christ had done in my own life with great conviction, I think he says later, and it changed things. And here's why that's powerful. Here's the power of that. Listen to what Romans chapter one, verse 16 says. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because... This simple message is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who would believe in it. There's this response. It is the power in the message. And so, so where does that power in the message come from? What well, comes in the second thing, he said there's power and there's Holy Spirit because the Spirit is working through all of this. It's not just Paul having to say, if I can just say it smart enough, if I can sound impressive enough, if I can make them laugh enough, whatever it may be, it's not about Paul. It's about Paul presenting this message and the Holy Spirit is using this message to weave its way into the hearts of people who are ready to receive it, who are ready to say, you know what, I'm frustrated with the old ways of life. I recognize that, that my life is, is hopeless and I need hope and I'm in sin and I need salvation. And, and so though, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I need a drink, sorry. Sorry about that. <coughs> So you may have to go refill this here in a second, kiddos. And so uh, if you'll just pass it down the road and everybody will spit in my cup for me and I'll have a drink for me. All right, very good. All right, very good. All right, that will be fun. We'll do that next youth group event, okay? All right, that'll be fun. All right, so, so he's got this Holy Spirit. If you read the end of the book of John, Jesus says a lot about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit's going to do when he comes. And Jesus says, hey, you think it's good having me here, but it's really gonna be better when I leave because then the Spirit will come, which is always one of those verses that says, boy, being face-to-face -face with Jesus has gotta be a pretty cool thing. But Jesus clearly says, hey, when I leave, the Spirit comes, it's gonna be better. And so what's he going to do? He's going to convict people of sin and he's going to prepare hearts and he's going to lead and he's gonna do things in the lives of people who are prepared to hear this and to receive this. And lives are going to be changed through the power and the Holy Spirit working in their life as the gospel is shared. Now, if we don't share it, nothing happens. God can't use that. But when we share it, not just up here on a stage, it's when you share it in your daily interactions with people, in your homes and in your workplaces, with friends and with people that you know. God is at work in that. And sometimes we don't think that he is. It feels kind of scary to say those words. Hey, there's this Jesus and he's died for you and, and he can transform your life and he can give you hope and all these things. And, and that feels like a scary thing in, in our world. But when we share it, God promises that, that the Holy Spirit is, will work with that. Even if you're not the smoothest presenter of the, in the world, God will be at work in that. And so he says the Holy Spirit, and then there's deep conviction. That's where that whole John thing comes in. And you can take that one of two ways as you look at that verse. When you think about the, that he came with deep conviction, I think one of the things, ways you can take it is that Paul presented it with deep conviction, which is a wonderful thing. You can certainly make a great case for that. Paul presented this with deep conviction. says this, as they listened to him, they said, this guy believes this. This guy has lived this. This guy is telling that something that he has lived in his own life. He's walked in this path. He knows this Jesus well. And so maybe it was the deep conviction of his presentation, or maybe it was the Spirit's work that, hey, when we presented this Jesus, you were convicted that Jesus is the Son of God and that we are lost apart from him and that we need to surrender to him. And so maybe the conviction is their own. So either way, it works. Maybe it's both of them that Paul shared it with great conviction and the Holy Spirit created great conviction in them and they say, we gotta follow this Jesus, so teach us more and, and follow. And they began to follow and they began to change because God was at work through a message shared, through the message that Paul shared. And so 
How does that apply to you and I? I think that the engagement, that interaction, we must be diligent to make sure that I'm staying engaged and interactive with God and his word and the gospel. Um, again, it's so easy for us to get um, distracted and think, well, I, he got me on the path. I've got my ticket to heaven. And so I'm just going to occupy myself with other things. And we disengage from the message that was so beautiful to us at first when we first met Jesus. And we begin to disengage. And the change stops because we're not interacting with the place where God says, this is where my power is at. It's through this message that I'm sharing with you as I'm convicting you and I'm changing you and I'm leading your heart. And so there's this conviction. So we've got to stay engaged, stay interactive with that. That's the first thing. Number two is this. I think God honoring change on top of that comes from this. It's made personal. I think it's fueled as we engage God's word, but it's made very personal for us by looking to examples of godly people and others in Christ, especially. And that's exactly what Paul says. Hey, that we came and we shared with you and you guys responded to this and your hearts began to change and, and you know how we lived among you, he says. And then he goes on to give him the example here in verse six and seven that you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And so what is he saying? He's saying, you, look, you didn't know what this whole new faith in Jesus thing looked like. And so well, what are we supposed to do now? Okay, yeah, we believe in him, but what are we supposed to do now? And they said, okay, look at us. Paul was, was confident in his faith enough, which is always a scary statement every time I read that, to say, hey, follow me. I'm trying to follow Jesus to the best of my ability. So follow me and hopefully you'll see some things of Jesus in me, but ultimately I hope you see Jesus through me. And so they began to follow and this imitation thing that how do you learn to do anything? Uh, if I could quote Tim Retchen again, in the first service, he shared an example of, of his, his boys again in their, little, their, uh, their piano recital yesterday. And the teachers made the comment, hey, those of you who are young, I want you to watch those who've been here doing this for a long time. Watch these older kids and see where you can go. And I want you, older kids, I want you to watch these younger kids and remember where you were. And it's this whole thing of, hey, I could be that someday. I could know that someday. I could play like that someday. It's the whole imitation thing. And we talk about apprenticeships in our schools and our community. We talk about all kinds of things. It's the same idea. It applies to faith too. It's not just this personal thing where I believe and I shelter myself from interaction with other people. I desperately, you desperately need people that I can say, hey, I don't know what it looks like to be a Christ follower. And so we need to put ourselves not only in places where we're interacting with the gospel, but in places where I'm going to see examples, not perfect examples, but people that are striving, people that are trying, people that are growing. And so that's why a community of faith is important, that I need to be around people that can help me to grow. Again, ultimately, I'm going to be looking to Jesus. I'm looking to the Lord, but there needs to be some people with skin on them that I can look at and say, hey, I don't know how to do this family thing very well. I don't know how to do this. I'm trying to learn to think differently or speak differently or live differently or serve differently. I don't know how to do this. Would you show me? And that's so much more powerful and helps us along. And so change comes when we and stay plugged into the word of God, the beginning of that passage. Change comes when we have good examples and we're looking for good examples. Say, so who can I follow after? Number three, I think God honoring change happens when it's driven deeper as we wrestle with intimidation and persecution. And this is the one you may want to scratch out later because this isn't the fun one, right? I like finding examples. It's good to find a good mentor, a good person who can help disciple you or whatever. But it's scary when part of the way that God uses to drive change deeper into the core of who we are is he uses intimidation and persecution. Okay, that's not a happy thought. But if you read the story back in Acts chapter 17 of where this little church comes from that becomes this thing that resonates throughout the region, 
part, part of the reason that it resonates is because there was a great deal of opposition, intimidation, and persecution that comes their way. It's not long after this church has started and, and this riot, some of the Jewish folks who had that hard heart we talked about before and didn't want anything to do with Jesus, they just wanted to stamp the message out. And so they pay some bad guys in town to start a riot, which ultimately drives Paul and Silas and, and Timothy out of town. And so part of the reason you have this letter in your Bible is that Paul is concerned about them. And he, he sends Timothy and he writes a letter back to them saying, I just want to know how you're doing. And, and so part of what this church had to live with was a group of people who hated their new faith, who didn't want anything, who wanted to get rid of that, their faith and, and stamp them out and encourage them to drive them back into, into fear and intimidation and use that to, to silence them. And so they had to make a choice. Am I gonna be a Jesus follower or am I not? It wasn't a, there wasn't much of a middle ground. I can either follow him and when I walk out my front door, people are probably gonna say things to me. There's probably gonna be some level of imitation intimidation is the word I'm trying to say. Intimidation, not imitation. That was the last point. Intimidation. There probably could maybe actually be some persecution that goes on here that is scary. And I have to decide, am I going to be a Jesus follower even if that happens? And when they said, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus, even though people may say things, I may be exclu excluded. I may be the butt of the jokes. I may be left out of things. I may be rejected from some things, but I'm still going to follow Jesus that's when that change was driven deeper into the core of who they were. And so they became people that were really more followers of Jesus because it was hard. It was not an easy thing. Uh, we all love easy paths, but easy paths don't do anything for us. They don't teach us anything. They don't make us stronger. It's the hard things of life like this that drives change deeper. And so if you want to change, if you want to really learn to be a better Jesus follower, um, find a place where people make fun of you for being a Christian and be a Christian in that place. Or speak up for Jesus in a place you never have before and wait till people make fun of you for it. And all of a sudden you're going to have to decide, am I really going to do this or not? Uh, and if you choose to, you'll find that change, that growth begins to go deeper into who you are. Because that's exactly what the Thessalonians modeled uh, for Paul, before Paul and, and others. Um, they became a model. If you look at verses 6 and 7, once again, here with me. It says this, uh, they severe suffering. That's never a pleasant term, right? And they received it with joy, though. They were glad. Jesus suffered for me. I'll be glad to suffer for him for a while. And so because of that, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So they became this resounding gong, this noise that was noticed in their region because they were willing to be faithful when it got hard. And finally, the number four, the last one is this. It is God-honoring change is lived out daily as I keep turning to Jesus. If you ever want a summary of what it looks like to be a Christian, I think this last two, verse, two or three verses here, eight, nine, and 10, is a good example of that. Paul would write again, we do not need to say anything about it for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God. And I underlined the three key words here, I think. There was a turning. They turned to God from idols. Note the order of that. They didn't get themselves all right and then they came to God. They turned to God and then the idols were behind them. They began to turn to God and all the other stuff began to fall away. All the stuff that didn't please God, that competed for God's allegiance, that, that wasn't God honoring in their life, it began to fall away. They began to change. You turn to God from idols, but there wasn't just a turning away from, it was a turning to things. And so they began to serve each other. And as you read through the rest of this letter in these next few weeks, you're gonna see that they began to love each other and encourage each other and pray for each other and help each other and sustain one another through hard things. They began to serve each other and help each other. 
And ultimately, they, they lived waiting for the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So there's a turning, there's a serving, and there's a waiting that he brings them to. And so it's a beautiful picture. How do you continue to stay as a person, how do you continue to change as a person who is seeking after God? You've got to daily say, okay, I have decided, the old Tim, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, I'm not looking back. This is Jesus. There's Jesus, there's, there's God, and, and I come to him through Christ, and, and I, I've turned. And so that, that turning automatically means I'm saying no to some things. And so your story as a Christian, people ought to be able to look at you and say, well, you used to, but you don't do that now. You don't talk like that now, or you don't think like that now. You don't act like that now. There ought to be some kind of story you can point to and say, hey, I, I'm turning. My life has turned from what I used to be. Now, that doesn't mean we're perfect. doesn't mean we're perfectly turned, but, but I'm, I'm turning in that direction. And there's a testimony that I can point to to say, you know what? I used to, but now God is changing me over time. And so, but there also ought to be new things. And so I'm serving him. And that, that picture of service is kind of came from the slave culture of Paul's day where they, they were, it was more of an employment thing, more so than a racial thing like we look at today. Um, but it was, it was a situation where your waking thought in the morning was, okay, master, what, sh what are your wishes? Who should I be today? What should I do today? And that's the thinking, okay? I I've turned away from those old idols that filled Thessalonica. If you went to Thessalonica, it was like 50 miles from Mount Olympus. And if you know your, your old Greek mythology, you know, that Mount Olympus was where all the Greek gods lived and, and the Romans had taken over many of those gods. And that was the culture. There was a God to meet every need, a God to meet every want. Anytime you had an issue or something, there was a God that you would go and you would worship, whether that was for pleasure, whether that was business success, whether, whatever it was, there was a God that you would worship. And they turned their backs on that because they realized the emptiness of those ways. And so you and I don't have a Mount Olympus, but we have a world full of idols, things that promise to satisfy you, things that promise to, to make you happy, things that promise to make you feel fulfilled and feel right with the world. But one after another, our world has grown frustrated because they don't satisfy us. And there is God who offers to say, come and serve the living and true God. Walk with me, serve me, do what I want you to do, be who I want you to be, and, and wait. There's again, there's that beautiful picture of waiting for his son from heaven. And what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the day when he makes it all right again. We're waiting for the day when Jesus, who has rescued us from wrath, he's taken care of the past, and he set us on a good path, a path that promises eternal life, a path that promises heaven, a path that promises reunion with him and with those who love him. And so he's rescued us from wrath, and so we wait. But we don't wait passively. We wait in service. We wait, say, God, this may be the day that Christ comes back. And so I'm waiting faithfully. I'm gonna keep loving people. I'm gonna keep serving. I'm gonna keep sharing this message because there's power to change people's lives in it. I'm gonna keep waiting actively, waiting for you as my master to come back and to save me ultimately in the end. And so I just wanna encourage you today to think about growth in your own life. Uh, we all get frustrated. Growth oftentimes happens way slower than we ever hope it would. And yet, how do I put myself in a place to do that? I think these Thessalonians illustrate that for us as, as they, they talk about what am I daily doing? Am I engaging? Am I interacting with God's word in a way that helps me to, to continue to be convicted, to be challenged, to be comforted, to, to be changed day by day? Am I doing that? Am I looking out, seeking out examples of people that, hey, this person does this really well in this part of their life and I need to learn from them. I need to go ask them some questions and, and, and learn from them. And if someone, if you're far 
farther along in your faith, don't be intimidated by that. Paul did that well, but don't be afraid to say, hey, this is, this is how I've done this. I'm not perfect. It's Jesus, not me, but let me help you. Let me pray with you, encourage you. Be willing to do that. It's gonna be hard. Be willing to stand firm through some difficult things and ultimately daily Remember that you have turned to God through Jesus and you've turned your back on some things, but you have turned to Jesus and you will serve him and we wait for him and the, the, the joy and the hope that keeps popping up in this letter all comes in that. I'm waiting for the day that he comes and it'll all be worth it. And so as we finish this morning, we're gonna worship together and I hope that as we worship today, it'll just simply be a celebration for you if you're a Christian to remind you of why you're waiting and what you're waiting for. There's something worth waiting for, something worth serving him for, worth turning away from, from the world's promises and empty stuff. There's something worth it for you at the end. So we're gonna pray and we're gonna stand together and we're gonna sing and worship together and, and we'll go from there. Let's pray together as we finish.